morning, everybody. I'm not sure. I think I heard Peter say that if I keep preaching, the business meeting doesn't happen and there's no vote. It sounds like a filibuster opportunity to me. <laughs> but I won't keep you that long, okay? My name is Chris Rowley. If you haven't had the chance to meet me, I, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning to hear about Jesus and just to see what he has for us. My wife Kelly and I, we bought our house in, uh, in 2010, and it's a really nice little house. We love the little house that we live in, and uh, we've got three little boys that love running around that, that house. Would you believe it? For the first six years that I lived in that house, there was something in there that I had never seen. I had walked by it every day. In fact, I probably walked by it like 10,000 times in the that first six years of living in the house, I never even realized that it was there. Until one day when, like most amazing discoveries, an accident happened, and I was wrestling with the boys in the living room. I think we were wrestling, or we were chasing each other around the house, and all of a sudden we, we bumped into something, and a, an amazing discovery happened. Let me, I've got a picture of it. For some reason, in our home, they built it in like the 1960s. There's this piece of marble on a counter near the, the front door of the house. I don't know why they put it there. It's kind of a weird color of marble, too. Sorry if you like green marble, but it's really the only thing in our house that looks like this, and so we just affectionately call it the marble. And it was always there, and I walked past this thing like every single day, thousands and thousands of times, and I never realized there was more to the marble than I thought. Until that day when I was wrestling with my boys, and one of them like bumped into the marble. I don't know who it was, but you can see in the second picture, the marble cracked. And it exposed that there was this hole underneath the marble, this little nook where someone could hide something if they wanted to. So we, we moved the marble back, and we looked in this little nook, and we found some rocks, we found a couple other random things, and then we found this, this old roll of undeveloped film. And I know you're wishing that I could tell you what was on that film, but I don't know what's on that film. I never got it developed to this day. And maybe I think for a Christmas present to myself, I, I need to develop that roll of film. But my point is this. There was something there all along. I didn't even realize it. I walked by it a million times, and I didn't ever notice it. And this morning, we're heading into some really familiar territory for some of you. We're going to read the Christmas story, and we've been kind of looking at different angles at who this child was that was born at Christmas. And for some of you, this is really familiar territory. You've, you've done this before. In fact, you could be up here preaching this sermon right now because you know the story of Christmas that well. But I'm praying and I'm hoping that you'll see what you've missed before in this story, because there is something you missed in this story. There's always something more to see. Just like, you know, driving on a familiar road that you've been on many, many times before, sometimes you see something you never saw before. And I've been praying this week that God will show you and that God will show me what it is that we've missed in this story. Do you believe that God has something for you that you may have overlooked before? I want to begin by asking God just to guide us and open our hearts to what he has for us. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. 
Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we pause here. We need you. Lord, there are treasures and riches in the words that we're about to hear that are far, far beyond what any of our minds can comprehend. God, would you show us the depth of your love today? Would you show us Jesus in a way that we may have never seen before? Amen. You can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin with some familiar words. This is the essential piece of the the Jesus birth story, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus is born into a very particular normal Jewish family. It's worthy of a whole sermon, but we don't have time to unpack all of it. Let let me just say quickly, though, Jesus is born into this very small little village where he grows up. It's a village called Nazareth. It would be kind of like Cornwall, Connecticut, about 1,500 people, maybe as small as like 500 people in this little tiny village where Jesus was born to an ordinary Jewish family. His parents would not have been dirt poor, okay, probably working class. His dad was a a day laborer. He worked with his hands, either as like a stonemason or a carpenter. And Jesus probably would have worked right alongside Joseph in whatever Joseph was doing. Joseph was probably in his late teens around the time that, that this story happened. Mary would have been in her early teens at the time that this happened very normal Jewish family. Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another, which is a very formal engagement process they would have had to go through to get to this point. And I want you to see this as we begin our story today, that that Jesus was born into a very ordinary family. And Jesus understands the very ordinary stuff of human life, the stuff that you're going through right now. Jesus understands all the things that normal human beings feel and face. He probably stubbed his toe on rocks. He probably hit his thumb when he was swinging the hammer. He probably got indigestion and whatever virus was going around Palestine at that time. Jesus knew what it was like to not sleep well at night and then wake up and have to work the next day. Jesus understands what The human condition is because he came here into an ordinary Jewish family and lived his life here. And I want you to start there by 
by understanding this reality this morning, that Jesus gets you. He gets you. He knows what you're facing. He understands your fears. He understands your worries, your anxieties, your doubts, your questions, your struggles. He understands the human condition because he lived here on this planet. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, it says that we have a high priest, Jesus, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Our high priest, Jesus, he gets it. He gets what you're going through right now. And the Bible says that he understands so intimately what we're facing, yet he didn't sin, he didn't fall into the sins that that we commonly face, but he understands them. He understands what you're facing. And he cares about it all. So we need to talk for a couple minutes about sin. Now, I know you're like, oh, come on, Christmas sermon, Chris. But the Christmas story tells us that Jesus came to save his people from sin, and and we need to talk about what it is for a couple of minutes. There's a story in the Bible that I love that most of you are so familiar with that really gets at the heart of what sin is and what sin does. It's the story of the prodigal son. How many of you know the story of the prodigal son? Okay, it could be called the story of the two lost sons. Okay, that's a whole nother sermon because both of the sons have some issues going on. But in the story of the prodigal son, there's, there's the two sons and there's this amazingly generous father. And one of the sons says to his dad, hey dad, I want the inheritance now before you die. How many of you are thinking, that's a bad idea, kid? Everybody knows that's not what you do. That's not how you honor your daddy. I mean, that, in that culture, that would have been basically like saying, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. And by the way, can I, can I get your money? And so this, this crazy son, he gets the money from his dad. That's the shocking part of the story, right? How many of you dads are like, I wouldn't have given him the money, okay? The crazy part of the story is that the father gives the son the money. Then the son, he runs off, and what does he do with the money? He parties. He parties. He's, like, taking these amazing photos on Instagram. He's got the nice car. He's got the perfect angle. He's got, like, all these girls in the background. He's feeling like he's hot stuff. And then daddy's money runs out, right? And everybody knows what happens when daddy's money runs out. The money's gone, the party's over. And I don't have to tell you the rest of the story because most of you are so familiar with the story, but there's, there's three things that we learn about sin from this story because, of course, the, the father in that story represents God and, and the son represents a lot of us. And there's three things that we, we can learn about sin from the story, right? The first thing is this. Sin is a broken relationship. That son broke the relationship with his father. And sin in our life is a broken relationship with God, right? That's the first thing that we learn about sin from that story. The second thing that we learn about sin from that story is that sin is a, it's a broken rule. It's a broken law. Like, there were certain laws and rules that that 
prodigal son was supposed to follow in that relationship with his dad, and, and he broke those. And sin in our life, it, it's a broken rule. It's a broken law. It's not following what we know God wants us to do. And the third piece of sin that we see from that story in Luke chapter 15 is that sin is a wrong path. Sin is a wrong path. It's being on the wrong path. Just as that son kind of literally left his family and went his own way, sin is it's when we leave God and we go our own way and we do our own thing. So, so do we understand those three aspects of sin as a broken relationship, a broken rule, and a wrong path? And we start to see here at this point in the Christmas story that sin is definitely an enemy. It's something we don't want to mess with. Sin is this problem that, that humans face, every human faces. And we can be thankful that Jesus came to save us from sin, But let's understand the world that Jesus was born into. Like, during the time that Jesus came, how did people deal with the problem of sin? They they understood what it was, so what did they do to try to fix that brokenness between them and God? And and we're going to camp out today in the book of Hebrews for a few minutes, because that's going to help us really see... Like, how did people deal with the problem of sin in their life? And we see in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9 describes this ceremony. It says the priest goes regularly into the first section, which was the holy place, where they would offer sacrifices for their sins. It says he, he goes in once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What's being described here in Hebrews is is a day that is called the Day of Atonement. And once a year, the high priest, the highest priest, would enter into the holiest place and they would offer a sacrifice to restore the brokenness between them and God. He would take a bull and sacrifice that bull. He would take a goat and and the sins of the people would symbolically be put onto the head of the goat and the goat would be sent off into the desert to signify that the sins were were being taken away. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 tells us that in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. See, Every single year, the Jewish people, they would go through this elaborate process of offering these sacrifices to God to try to fix the broken relationship between them and God. And the Bible says in in chapter 10, verse 3, it was a constant reminder of their sinfulness. How many of you guys like constant reminders of sinfulness? Everybody's like, no. Oh, it is so hard. It is so hard to be reminded of our sin constantly. For the Jewish people, it was a constant reminder that the relationship between them and God was broken and that something needed to happen to fix it, that a sacrifice needed to take place to restore that broken relationship with God. That was the world into which Jesus came. And you know what? It's not really all that different from the world in which we live today. And, and 
the world in which we live today, people continually still offer sacrifices, all different types of sacrifices, all different ways of trying to make things right with God, even in the different religions of the world. They're, in devotional Buddhism, people continually offer sacrifices. In, in the Vedic tradition, in Hinduism, people offer sacrifices. In, in ancient Chinese history, people offered sacrifices. In in Greek history, for 10 centuries, the Greeks practiced the offering of sacrifices to try to appease the gods, to try to make the gods happy with them, to try to get blessing and forgiveness from the gods. In Islam, today, families who have the means are able to offer a sacrifice in a, in a ritual known as hadi. It's almost as if all around the world, for thousands of years, human beings have recognized there's something that's not right between me and God, and there's something that needs to be done to fix the broken relationship between us and God. It's a human understanding that we almost all share. Something needs to happen to fix the broken relationship. So how do you deal with sin in your life? Like, make it real personal. What do you do? I want you to do something that might make you feel a little uncomfortable. I want you, as you're sitting there, to think about that thing, whatever it is. It's that thing that you know that God doesn't want you to do. I want you to think about it. You got it in your mind? And I want you to imagine that you just did it. You just did it. Whatever it was that God wanted you to do, I want you to imagine that you just did something that messed up that relationship between you and God. You got it in your mind? You're imagining it? How do you feel? You want to hide, right? I mean, I would hide, but we've got like this really skinny pulpit here. There's nowhere for me to hide. But when we, when we do that thing that hurts that relationship between us and God, we all feel that shame, right? We feel that guilt. We feel that brokenness. We want to hide. We want to run away. The, the Bible begins with a story of, of two people who sinned against God. And what, what happened af, after they did the thing that, that they knew God didn't want them to do, they wanted to hide. And so much of of the human condition and so much of humanity is this, this trying to hide, this trying to cover ourselves, this trying to not be exposed and seen as, as a fraud. Sin is a scary thing, isn't it? Well, maybe you're feeling a little apprehensive about even thinking of that thing just thinking and imagining that you did something that hurt that relationship between you and God. But maybe it's something real. Maybe it's something that you did 10 minutes ago or 10 years ago. Maybe it's a wrong path that you've been on for a long time. And you feel that shame. And maybe for some reason this morning, you're sitting here and you're just like, oh man, Chris, this was not a very nice Christmas sermon. And you're just feeling the weight of that right now. I want to introduce you to my friend. 
I want to introduce you to someone who can fix that. I want to introduce you to someone this morning who can relieve that heavy burden that you might be feeling. In fact, some of Jesus' most precious words are the words to come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. Will you meet Jesus today? Back in the, in the scripture that we started with, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, I, I've got to introduce you afresh to Jesus. Okay, Joseph has these big questions about, well, I don't get it. Like, how is Mary pregnant? And the, the angel shows up to Joseph, and the angel says to Joseph, your wife, or your fiance, Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. In ancient times, names had a ton of significance. Like the name that you give someone had meaning. And that's one of my favorite things to do today. When I, when I meet someone new, I like to ask them, what does your name mean? You should try it. You get some really interesting meanings from different people. I had a friend, um, his parents named him Genius. Can you imagine the pressure, <laughs> right? Names have significance. We, we all understand that, right? Like when you have a child, you think carefully about the name that you're going to give to that child. Jesus' name is no exception. You know what Jesus' name means? It means God saves. Jesus' name means God saves, which means that Jesus' purpose for coming is the same as his name. God saves, has come to save us from sin. When Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as the Savior. He comes as the one who can lift this heavy burden that his people have been experiencing. People have often tried to save themselves. We talked about the offering of sacrifices. See, I know there's some realtors in this room right now, right? And there's some of you, you could probably tell us stories. You've seen like some houses that look really nice on the outside, but on the inside, they're a mess, right? See, that's what the problem is with these sacrifices that had been offered again and again. They, like, they were doing a good job fixing up the outside of the house, but on the inside, there was some major structural issues going on, right? But Jesus comes as the one who can fix us from the inside, who can heal us from the inside, who can take away that shame and who can lift that heavy burden. Hebrews 9 verse 13, it says, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purifying our conscience is different than just fixing up the outside of the house. Jesus came to give us new life on the inside forever. That's good news. So I've introduced you to Jesus. I want to introduce you now to what Jesus has done. And I'm going to read for you 
from what I think is the most precious chapter in the entire Bible, and I would not say that lightly. I'm going to read for you from Hebrews chapter 10. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, we actually get to see how Jesus became the sacrifice for sin once for all so that we don't need to be trapped in that system of wondering, is what I've done good enough to make me acceptable to God? Because Jesus came to be good enough for us. Jesus came to fix us and heal us on the inside. So read these precious words with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. This is saying there was something that wasn't complete about the system of sacrifices. There was something that wasn't enough. And we see what it is in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There was something about that sacrificial system that just wasn't enough to remove the sins of humanity forever. There was something more that needed to happen. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ, when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So Jesus is saying, God has prepared a body for him. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas, that God came here as a human in a human body, which was prepared to be offered up as a sacrifice for sins. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is Jesus speaking. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. If I lost you there, come back to me now for verse 10. Verse 10. This is precious. By that will, by God's will, we, God's people, have been sanctified, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What does that mean? Once for all. No more sacrifices. It's finished. When Jesus said on the cross, it's finished, 
He meant it's finished. Once for all. Verse 11. And every priest, this is back to that old system, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You're picturing that priest again and again and again. Maybe you're picturing yourself right now again and again and again, trying again and again and again to make God happy again and again. Is that you? Verse 12. But when Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Not only did Jesus offer himself as a one-time forever sacrifice for our sins, it says he's seated at the right hand of God, which reminds us he's not dead. He's alive. He was raised Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hey, you got to get this. This is precious. For all of you who are followers of Jesus, get this verse 14. Notice, notice kind of the, the past and the the future here. It says, by a single offering, he has perfected, okay? If you are God's child, if you have trusted in Jesus, guess what? You're still going to mess up. I mess up all the time. You're still going to sin. This is something you're going to be struggle with, struggle with until the day you die. But the Bible says that God has perfected you. He has done it. But <clears throat> second part of verse 14, those who are being sanctified, he's still doing it in us. Can anybody say amen? We're... We're not quite there yet, but we are there yet. You got it? At the same time, God can say, you are holy, you are justified, you are forgiven, and God can say, hey, you're still a work in progress. Talk to Kelly. She'll tell you, I'm still a work in progress. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Did anybody need to hear that this morning? Because there's some of you this morning, that's all that you're remembering. And you are God's child. You have trusted in Jesus You need to know these words. These are precious words which I'm speaking over you only because God has spoken them over you. God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You don't need to remember it because God doesn't remember it. That's what this says. God, the amazing God of love. The scripture says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. Okay, God is Love And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love keeps no record of wrong. And right here, verse 17, it says that God will remember our sins no more. Do you believe that? I know, I know there are people who are racked with guilt and shame over what they've done. And God says to you, if you are his child this morning, 
He doesn't remember it. You don't need to remember it because he's not remembering it. And tying it all together in verse 18, he says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You wonder why there's no more need for for sacrifices and this whole system of offering animals to God to try to fix the brokenness because God has taken away the sin through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. And there's three things that, that the writer here of Hebrews kind of challenges us with as we kind of tie these ideas together. Okay, okay, I got it. Jesus came to save us from our sin. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin. There's no more sacrifices needed. When I trust in Jesus, I am completely loved and forgiven. So what? So so then what? What do we do? Keep reading. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, this is it, this is our first takeaway, Verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is our first takeaway. Friends, come near to God. Come near to him. Like I know not every one of us in this room had a father who you could trust. Not everyone had a father who was good and loving and patient and kind, but God is that kind of father, and God is asking you to come near to him. Like a little child climbing up on the lap of their father who they love and trust, come near to God. God loves you and is calling you to come near And for some of you, you need to hear this. You need to hear that at the center of of all reality is this God that is for you. Romans chapter 8 tells us that God is for us. At the center of the universe is a God who is for you, who has acted on your behalf to forgive you. And to make you his child. Will you come near to him? And and for a second group of us, some of you, you may be like in that group where you're, you're just, yeah, you've kind of been living on a wrong path. You've been living this, this life just full of sin and things that, that you know are hurting your relationship with God. And, and I would say the same to you. God is calling you to come near to him. Come near to God. The amazing thing in that story that I told you before about the two sons and the amazing father is that when that son came back to his dad and realized that he had messed everything up, that that father took him back. That father had a party for him because he loved him so much. And some of us, we may have ideas about God. We may think God is like this dictator this tyrant, this person that that is just so obsessed with sin. God is not obsessed with sin. God is in love with you. 
And sin is the only thing that keeps us from him. And just like a good doctor is not obsessed with sickness, a good doctor is obsessed with healthiness. God is not obsessed with sin. God is desiring a relationship with you. And he's saying, come to him. Come to him. God is so kind. The Bible says that, the Bible says that it's God's kindness that leads us to turn away from our sin and come back home to him. God is so kind. For some of you, I think God is working in your hearts, and I want to encourage you, hey, don't leave this place until you you got to pray with someone or talk with someone about what God is doing in your heart. We always have people over here in this corner. All the elders will be there. I'll be there. The prayer team will be there. We would love to talk with you about maybe something that God is showing you in your heart related to what I'm talking about, coming home to God. Would you come home? Would you come near? The second thing we see that God is is calling us to, verse 23, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without Some of you, you just need to hold on to what you know is true. You are forgiven. You are God's child. You are precious to God. Hold fast to what you know is true. The Bible actually says that Satan is called the accuser of God's people. Satan is always going to want to remind God's people about how bad they are and how unworthy they are. Hold fast to what you know is true. You are forgiven and loved immensely by God. And the third challenge that we have, that we're given is in verse 24. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. God is calling us, Calvary, to encourage one another, to stir each other up, to love into good works. And we're about to do something together. It, it is good to be in this room together with you this morning. And this morning, we're going to do something together. We are, we are going to do something very tangible, something very real, that is going to help us to stir one another up to love and good works. It's going to help us to remind ourselves of the beauty of what we heard today. I'm going to ask the the elders if they could come forward. I'm going to ask the the worship team if you could come forward as well. As we get ready to move into a time of communion, let's remember what we learned today. We learned that God called a teenage couple to parent the eternal Son of God. We learned that Jesus became a very real, a very tangible sacrifice for the sins of the world to restore that broken relationship between us and God. And finally, we learned that God is calling us to come near to him, to draw close to him. And on the night before Jesus was killed as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus was with his closest friends in an upper room, 
and they were celebrating a meal. And Jesus instituted what has become a tradition to remind Christians around the world that there is no sacrifice needed anymore. Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was enough for all times. And on that night, Jesus took a, a piece of bread and he broke that bread and he said that it represented his body, which would be crushed for the sins of the world. And then he took a cup of wine and he said that it represented his blood, which would be poured out for the sins of the world. And as we partake of communion, I think it's so precious that God has given us something physical to do to remind us that the death of Jesus for sins, it's not a philosophy, it's a reality. It happened in space and time because God loves you so much that he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. So we're going to ask everyone who is a follower of Jesus to come forward to partake of communion. You can take the communion elements when you're ready, you can take them back to your seat. And when everyone has done that, I'll come back up and lead us in that time together as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made once for all for our sins. Come ready, come forward as you're ready. <laughs>